From the Envelope of Suicides, a study of the will to die and the will to live. Episode 2, Street Scenes, Hartford Avenue, in which our narrator explores how the forces of history and culture shaped one suicide story. talk this week about the power of witness. I want to talk this week about the power of seeing another person as clearly as you can, without preconceptions. If you can do this well enough to see that person in her full humanity, you see that she is just as alive as you are. She has another universe of mind as deep and wide as yours. There is a ridiculous majesty in this and you catch it in a flash. There is an entire life in another person. It sounds so simple. It sounds self-evident, and we all know this intellectually. Of course we do. But to truly see it is to walk the path of empathy, and it expands your understanding of what it means to be human and what it means to be alive. When you look outside yourself and into another person, you see there's another way to be alive, even if that other person works in the same shop where you work all day or lives in your same apartment block. There's another way to experience it all and another way to build a self from all that experience. Someone who might look like you or someone who might, after a moment of sudden focus, blend into a crowd of people who look nothing like you. Imagine how that person experiences sleep or being hungry or being a mother, or coming back from war. It is wondrous to learn as best you can what the world is like for the immigrant who works in vain to bring his family over, or the paperboy who's learning French, or the woman standing in the door of the tavern. It's a source of endless wonder to see as best you can absolutely any other person. And while some of us embrace our limits better than others, and some of us simply have less we must overcome. We all share the struggle to be human. We all make choices and live the consequences. We all strive to make meaning in our lives. We are all mortal. All of us will die. We each enter the world and leave it alone. But grasping with our empathetic imaginations as best we can how others struggle to be human makes us less alone. Each act of empathetic imagination creates new possibilities and expands for you what it means to be human, but this wonder is laced with pain. We see how people who have as much right to wonder and joy as we do are closed off from them, and so they suffer. We see how people are cut off from their modest dreams. We see poor choices punished without mercy and we see punishments inflicted on them regardless of the choices they've made. We see people who are as wholly human as we are, we see them suffer, and it challenges us. Are we complicit in their pain? What can we do to lessen it? How much are we willing to give up? But it all goes deeper than that. Their pain is a mirror of our own vulnerability and our own humanity. To apprehend the pain of another person as a fully human pain is the root of compassion. And it's impossible, impossible to truly see the human wonder of other people without being a witness to their pain. Let me give you an example. In 1910, a boy named Albert Kayeski was born to two Lithuanians who were just kids themselves who'd been caught up by some force or hope and brought somehow to America. Thrown together by love or fate, they married when she was just 14 and he was just 17. They raised their little Lithuanian-American boy in a six-room home they came to own. It was their corner of the American dream on a short street in the southeast part 
of New Britain, Connecticut. Albert Kayeski grew up on that short street with four other Lithuanian families, four German families, an English family, two American families, a Polish family, and two Swedish families. Having befriended the children of all of them, and even, as he was proud to point out, a black boy from school, Albert saw clearly the foolishness of discrimination while just a child. Once, when he was playing in a vacant lot with the friend, his friend's father grabbed the other boy by the hand and turning said, I don't want you playing with these Polak kids. Come on home. Even though the boy's father and Albert's father drank beer together and helped each other build chicken coops in the backyard, Albert somehow wasn't good enough to play with his son. Albert never identified completely as an American nor as a Lithuanian. By this he means he hasn't attempted to show he was an American by flag-waving or extreme patriotism, nor has he bragged and considered himself superior because he was Lithuanian. No, he has always thought of himself as living in this country and being a part of it, whether small or large, by accident of birth. It's the place he knows the most about and the only way of living he really knows. Regardless, discrimination in regards to jobs started at an early age for him. The first job he had hung in the balance for a week, and only through the intervention of friends was he able to get it. While going to high school, he worked in the New Britain office of the Hartford Current on the circulation end of the business. He worked from 4 in the morning till 8 when he went to school, and after school he worked from 3.30 till 6. His work was keeping the circulation books, building papers for delivery, and supervising the activities of the newsboys under the direction of the branch manager. At the time he graduated from high school, the branch manager offered Albert a full-time job. He took it, and he worked for about a year before he learned of a job in the editorial office that was going to be opened. He wanted to be a reporter, and during the time he'd spent in the office, he had tried his hand at writing small news items and helping out the reporters in the office so that he had a working knowledge of that end of the business. After he applied for the job with the state editor, the state editor, of course, asked about Albert at the local office. Albert happened to overhear his checkup conversations with the local reporters and the circulation manager, and he heard the state editor's remarks to them regarding his name and parentage. They weren't very complimentary, and they were weighted with doubt. This went on for a week, and then Albert finally got the job. Later, he learned that what swung the balance in his favor was the fact that his former boss guaranteed his reputation that Albert would handle the job creditably. Albert was determined to show his new boss that he was capable, and he worked hard. His work was satisfactory, and when he left to further his schooling, his boss invited him to come back when he was ready to work again. When he was done with school, though, for some reason he couldn't catch back on at the paper. Other jobs that he's applied for since then have shown the hidden currents of discrimination at work. At one time, a factory in town advertised for a copywriter in the advertising department. He applied and was granted an interview. The advertising manager was an American, but he still seemed impressed after the interview and told him to come back and see him in a few days. From his attitude toward Albert, he felt that he was going to give him the job. A few days later, Albert went back, and the advertising manager told him that the office manager would have to approve his application, but that he was out of town. For about a month, they kept making dates of that sort. Then one day, he went in to see the advertising manager and the advertising manager said the job had been filled. Later, Albert found out the job had been given to a fellow he knew casually, an American who had no experience of the work and had answered the ads in hopes that he would get an interview. From him, Albert found out that the factory had hired the American a week after Albert's first interview and that the American had only gone there once and had been hired on the spot. Numerous other jobs that Albert's been interviewed for have turned out in the same manner. People have had him call back two or three times after an interview and then later told him the job was filled. Letters of application that he sent for jobs that he knows he's well fitted for have never been answered. The only solution that he has for the problem is to continually seek a job in the hopes that someone will hire him on the ground of his ability or experience in preference to his name or nationality. 
By the start of 1939, Albert Kayeski identified as a deist, a sign of his free thinking and a badge of independence from his Catholic heritage. At this point, he doesn't particularly feel himself a part of his group or his culture. He doesn't take any active part in its affairs here or abroad. He's not interested in the perpetuation of the Lithuanian group in this country because he believes that keeping a group apart as such is retarding Americanization of the people in the group and is creating internal problems. For instance, if there were no group consciousness, there would be less discrimination between people of the various groups on the grounds of nationality. People would be accepted on the grounds of what they were instead of what their nationality was. He is going to raise his children as complete Americans because, since they are going to live in this country, he wants them to be as completely a part of it as they can be. Regardless, discrimination has played a big part in his life because, he thinks, if it weren't for his obviously foreign name and foreign parentage, he would at present be working in a job he liked in private industry. He is sure that one of those positions he applied for and nearly had would have been his, if not for that reason. Instead of being, for instance, a reporter for the New Britain Herald, he worked for little pay for the Federal Writers Project. No, it didn't pay much, but the Federal Writers Project was actually a pretty amazing program. He was part of the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, and it might best be seen as a vast project of cultural anthropology that put unemployed writers to work by directing them to observe and take the life histories of ex-slaves, migrant workers, and the regular people of their own neighborhoods, documenting everything they could with a special emphasis on the intricacies of ethnicity. The primary technique of the FWP was the personal interview that the interviewer later edits himself out of to leave a monologue, often in phonetic dialect, of someone explaining who he is and how he has become who he's become. The premise of it all, besides keeping writers from starving, seemed to be that if we could read and understand each other's stories, our shared humanity would compel us to stand up for one another and band together and protect each other so we could build a better America. At one point, the Federal Writers Project employed 2,600 writers in cities and towns across the country, richly talented writers like Ralph Ellison, Zora Neale Hurston, John Steinbeck, Mae Swenson, and Studs Terkel. And just like them, Albert Kayeski of New Britain, Connecticut, was paid $20 a week by the WPA to interview local people and transcribe their stories. By 1938, the Federal Writers Project's New Britain office employed 14 writers. Those 14 former newspaper reporters or former in-house writers for industrial firms who'd lost their old jobs spread through the city with their notebooks each day, looking to capture a new angle of life. One day, toward the end of a project called Lithuanians of New Britain, after Albert Kayeski had interviewed a series of local Lithuanians like Alexander Carlonis, the undertaker, who remembered how the Polish kids would pick on the Lithuanian kids, but both groups would band together to fight the Irish kids, who called both the Polish kids and the Lithuanian kids alike Polacks and honkies, and who seemed to have every advantage in life. And like the attorney Algert Politis, who had to cater mostly to Lithuanians, because he'd been refused admittance solely because of his foreign parentage to certain circles, clubs, and societies where the Yankees predominate, and where a professional man like himself would normally expect to network with potential clients. For his final interview in the series called Lithuanians of New Britain, Albert Kayeski chose to interview himself and include his own testimony in the record. I know this because I saw his report of the self-interview that he'd conducted and typed up on paper that's now brittle and crumbling on its corners. I've been quoting from it extensively over the past several minutes, in fact. I found that self-interview when I dug through the archives of the Connecticut Office of the Federal Writers Project that are held by the Connecticut State Library in Hartford. The Connecticut State Library has a few uncatalogued archival boxes of the reports and testimonials of the New Britain Office, and I think the Library of Congress has some of their materials, too. But most of the thousands of interviews and ethnographic studies its writers wrote have been lost. 
The one other report of particular note that I found by Albert Kayeski that still exists is titled Street Scenes, Hartford Avenue, and it's one of three remaining documents from a project called Study of Streets. The other two in the Study of Streets series were both written by Catherine C. Metcalf. One of Miss Metcalf's reports was titled Church Street from Maine to Elm as it is today, and the other was Description of a Church Street Grill. In the latter, Miss Metcalf reports... With an escort, I stepped into the Regal Grill, which is one of the rowdiest night spots in the city and is located on Church Street next to the railroad station. The moment we entered the place, the reek of cheap liquor hit us, and in the center of the floor, amid the cigarette smoke, coarse-looking girls were dancing with their greasy-looking escorts to the tune of the beer barrel polka. We took a booth which enabled us to view the rather cheap crowd that patronizes the place. And soon I noticed a Sadie Thompson type of woman dancing with an old bloke who was quite obviously too drunk to stand. Every time his legs started to buckle from under him, she would hold him up and say, that's all right, dearie, that's all right, just take it easy now. When the orchestra struck up a fast, hot number and the younger couples started to jitterbug, they left the dance floor to order more drinks. The waiter, a rather nice-looking Polish boy, came over to take our order and, when asked how business was, replied, Friday and Saturday nights are our busy nights. A lot of the old guys you see here now get paid then and come in here to spend their money on drinks. Across the room, several tough-looking boys raised their voices quite loudly and were using abusive language. It looked for a minute as if there'd be a fight, but the waiter hurried over to their table and told them to pipe down or get out. There are three entrances to the grill. Two in front and one on the side of the building, which is next to the railroad station. One of the front entrances is used by men, and leads to the bar, and the other is used by ladies and their escorts. In the bar, there are tables around which some of the older men sit and drink, while in the other section, there are booths, a dance floor, and a small stage for the orchestra. The orchestra plays only on Friday and Saturday nights, and on the other nights, the patrons dance to the music of a nickel slot machine. This particular night, There happened to be an orchestra, and when they played, it was impossible to talk, much less think. We talked with the waiter for a few minutes when he brought our order, and he said, This place is always like this. Guys always get drunk and then start a fight. Those dopes fight all the time between themselves over their girls or something. I'd like to throw them out, but the boss says not to unless they make trouble. Just then, somebody yelled for a pitcher of beer, and our waiter friend departed. Some girl, who was quite drunk, ran around looking for her hat and coat, which she claimed someone had stolen. And about this time, we decided to leave the Regal. On our way out, we observed the bar entrance, the section reserved for men, and saw several poorly dressed old fellows drinking beer at both the bar and the tables. The place had a foul reek, and even after we were out on the street, we could hear the music banging away and the shouts of the Regalites. Albert Kayeski's study, entitled Street Scenes, Hartford Avenue, was set just a few blocks away and says, When you speak of the avenue in New Britain, any native knows the street referred to. About a third of a mile in length, Hartford Avenue runs from East Main to Stanley Street. One of the low-rent districts in the city, it has been the scene of bizarre and tragic happenings from murder and suicide to humorous incidents. The Old Street, one of the main traffic arteries to and from Hartford, has developed from a residential district into a highly commercialized space. To be sure, it is the main site of the Jewish kosher meat, fish, and poultry markets in the city. The commercial activities carried on in that short stretch of street are as varied as the cookery smells of the many nationalities that occupy the cheap tenements above and behind the stores. The first two blocks contain most of the business places. The last block is occupied mostly by two- and three-family houses. Only the houses on the last block of the street 
have front yards with lawns of any sort. The businesses carried on in the first two blocks run the gamut from grocery stores, bakeries, meat and fish markets, to secondhand furniture, hardware, printing, plants, a gunsmith, and a locksmith, besides the various kosher markets. The reason that the avenue developed into such a commercial thoroughfare is probably because it was at one time the haven of the Jewish immigrants. From small beginnings with push carts and packs on their backs, they developed into the owners of the small stores that open early and close late every day of the week. Though Jewish shopkeepers predominate, other nationalities, Russian, Lithuanian, Spanish, and Italian, occupy some of the stores. Nearly all the buildings on the avenue are old, having been built before or during the speculative 20s. Only two have been built since that time. So of the houses on the last block of the street, few show evidence of having been painted during recent years. The majority of the others only show the grime and dust of years. The street itself is continually busy with traffic that is entering and leaving the city. It presents a vista of pavement, sidewalk, and storefronts plastered with signs. A day on the avenue gets underway about 6 a.m. The storekeepers begin opening their places of business and setting up their outside displays. Delivery trucks for dairies, bakeries, etc. begin to stop with the day's supplies and traffic on the street grows heavier. Few early customers, women with their hair in curlers and drowsy-looking men, begin to make their appearance. Workers, both men and women, start out of their homes, most of them carrying their lunch, wrapped in paper or in a box. They stop in at the bakeries or fruit stands for additions to their lunch. Then those people pass off, a lull hits the street, and neighboring shopkeepers find time to talk. Some of them set a box or chair in front of the store and read their favorite paper. Children make their appearance on the street. Some of them start off for school in a leisurely fashion, stopping to pick up odds and ends that suit their fancy and waiting for some crony on the corners. Others dash in and out of stores doing errands for their mothers before starting off to school. Housewives next appear on the street, some pushing baby carriages, others carrying tots on their arms. They go from store to store, gradually buying the various items they need, and knowing their storekeepers argue back and forth about the price. Small knots of them form in front of stores and other corners, and they gossip in their native tongue. It might be Polish, Lithuanian, Italian, or Jewish. Gradually, they disappear again to their tenements to prepare the noonday meal. The noon hour begins a lull to the street, excepting for the continual throb of traffic back and forth. The rest of the afternoon continues a quiet course. Shoppers go back and forth among the stores. Women stand and talk. Some of them sit at the front entrance of their tenements while their children play around on the walk near them. Others lean out of their front windows watching the traffic or calling to a neighbor next door. The stores carry on a desultory business. Smartly dressed salesmen give their cards and leave again. The children come home from school. They play ball and other games in the yards behind the stores or in open spaces between the buildings. Little girls skip rope on the sidewalks and play other games on their own. About five o'clock, workers on their way home again fill the walks with traffic on the street, correspondingly increasing. Before six o'clock, a lull again takes place to the activities of the street. Afterwards, children take up their outdoor games that were interrupted by supper time. People begin making their way up and down the street, some stopping to make purchases at the stores, others heading for places to spend the evening. Business in the seven taverns and grills begins to pick up. During the day, these places are quiet, with only the usual hangers-on playing cards and drinking an occasional beer. At night, the nickel phonographs play louder and voices from the bars can be heard in the street. Most of this activity is carried on in the first two blocks of the street. In the last block, people sit on their front porches, some reading papers, others chatting with neighbors. This end of the street is still and quiet long before the other portion is ready to call it a night. The seven previously mentioned grills and taverns furnish the nightlife of the street. They are located mostly in the first two blocks of the street. 
in them take place the beginnings of the brawls that have led to the police patrol wagon becoming a familiar sight on the avenue. About one in the morning, the neon lights advertising the bars go out. The last patrons bid each other last good nights, and quiet falls once more on the avenue. Life and living quarters of a typical tenement family on the avenue can be followed by this picture of Joe in his home. He works on a WPA's labor project and earns $15 a week. Rent on the four rooms he and his family occupy is $15 a month. The building the tenement is in has five other families occupying the tenements located above the two stores of the ground floor. One of the stores is a grocery and the other is vacant. The house itself is an old building with the newer brick fronts of the stores pushed into the bottom floor. Above the stores, about 25 feet back, windows stretch across the face of the building. The wooden part of the building has not been painted for many years. Dust and soot lie thick over the peeling paint. Stepping into the hallway located between the two storefronts, you face a set of unpainted worn stairs looking up between walls painted a drab brown. The ceiling is dirty gray and the walls have nicks and marks in the plaster. Besides the paint, they are decorated with pencil and crayon marks. At the bottom of the stairs, you find a collection of dust, i.e. cigarette butts and old advertising circulars. The stairs themselves are littered with small odds and ends. At the top of the stairway from the first landing, you can look up through the stairwell and see a dirty skylight allowing faint light to trickle through. Doors to the tenements open onto the landing. The doors themselves prepare you for the interior of the tenement. They are painted the same drab brown as the walls of the hall and have the weary look of much use. One of the lower panels of the doors is cracked, and a piece of wood, probably from a box, is nailed across to hold it together. The paint has been scuffed away from the bottom of the natural wood shown in splinters. When you take hold of the cold, greasy knob, the door wearily sags open and you step across the worn threshold into a bedroom. The room was probably intended for a sitting room, but the necessity of six people living in four rooms has made the change. Joe has four children, one boy and three girls. This room is used by Joe and his wife. Furniture is simple, a big brass bed, a bureau painted pale blue. Joe did it himself because his wife likes the color and it matches her best bedspread. Two kitchen chairs painted the same color and a small table. The floor is covered by a piece of worn and faded linoleum with the edges of the floor surrounding it painted a serviceable gray. All the woodwork in the room is the same color. The light fixture is a simple shaded bulb hanging down from the dusty gray ceiling. The wallpaper is tan colored with the vague traceries of a faded pattern. A tinny sounding radio on a small stand completes the furnishings of the room. The door on the left of the bedroom that you first enter coming into the house leads into another bedroom that is used by the children. Its woodwork is the same gray of the preceding room. The wallpaper is the same color and the ceiling is the same dirty gray. The furniture consists of a large iron bed painted white, which is used by the girls and a small couch with a cheap slip cover that is used by the boy. There is also a painted bureau with a mirror on it and a kitchen chair. A doorway on the left side of the room leads into the kitchen of the tenement. The kitchen floor that shows around the edges of a well-worn linoleum rug is painted gray. The woodwork of the two windows, the doors and the paneling, which occupies three feet of the bottom of the wall around the kitchen, is painted the same color. Between the two windows stands a kitchen table with four chairs standing around it. The kitchen sink is of black iron and sits on a small cupboard built of the paneling that covers the bottom of the walls. On the left side of the sink is a small hallway that leads to the back door and the toilet. There is no bathtub. Halfway down this hall stands a small walnut icebox. Only highly perishable foods are kept in it because there is little space. Joe says he would like a bigger one, but ice costs too much 
and this one uses very little. One of Joe's son's chores is to take a little wagon that they have constructed from a wooden box and a set of old carriage wheels three times a week and go to the ice storage plant at the head of the street where he buys the family ice. The reason that Joe lives on the avenue is because the rent is cheap. He has been living there since 1934. Prior to that, he had owned a small home of his own on the outskirts of the city, but long unemployment resulted in foreclosure. They had better furniture there too, but it had been bought on credit and had not been entirely paid for, so the store took it back. What they have now is the cast-offs of their friends and relatives, plus what Joe has been able to pick up at second-hand stores. One of the most publicized features of the Avenue is the gang. This is a group of six or seven ne'er-do-wells and their cronies who haunt the avenue and make the street their headquarters. They perform small jobs for the businessmen on the street and then spend their earnings in the taverns on the street. Whenever the gang manages to dig up enough money for a spree, the party usually ends at police headquarters where most of them are well known. One of these episodes in the life of the gang was recently aired before the court. Like most of the things that the gang takes part in, it had an innocent beginning. Several of the members were standing on the avenue one morning discussing ways and means toward a drink when a property owner on the avenue came along and asked them to clean out a store that was recently vacated. The owner of the store had died and the estate was moving out his belongings. Having agreed on a price for the work, the gang began their cleanup task. After the work was done, they were paid, and for the next week, the residents of the avenue were given food for thought. The gang started on one of their wildest sprees in history. Seemingly, they had an unlimited amount of money, which they spent in lordly fashion at bars where once the proprietors used to chase them out for cadging. After two or three days of the high life, several members of the group were picked up by the patrol wagon for the usual cause of drunkenness and breach of the peace. Police were shocked into a realization that something was amiss when their prisoners offered to put up bail for their appearance in court. After investigating and questioning members of the gang, police found the answer to their sudden wealth. While they had been cleaning out the store, they had found a tin can containing nearly $2,000. They kept the discovery to themselves and later split the proceeds. As a result, police recovered most of the money and returned it to the estate of the former storekeeper. The gang is back on the avenue, holding discussions on ways and means to a drink. I admire the animating idea of the Federal Writers Project, that sharing our stories with each other brings us closer together, and it deepens our understanding of our shared humanity. This idea didn't start with the FWP, of course. It's a core principle of a healthy culture, and I've seen how it drives me and how it has made me who I am. So I know that when we try to grasp the existence of another person, especially someone who has been largely lost to the past, we must read as carefully as we can every scrap and shard of their story that we can find. More than that, if we're to read them with our empathetic imaginations, we must seek to see as clearly as possible the worlds they lived in and how they might have experienced those worlds. And especially when we're peering into the shifting subjectivities of generations past, we must learn whatever we can about the people who shape those stories and who left them for us to find. Albert Kayeski, the man who sets the stage for us on Hartford Avenue, the scene of bizarre and tragic happenings from murder and suicide to humorous incidents, was one of the last seven writers working at the New Britain office of the Federal Writers Project before the whole project was defunded by Republicans in Congress in 1939 after years of attacks on the project by the House Un-American Activities Committee for the Un-American Act of telling us too much about the Americans who make up America.
Albert Kayeski enlisted in the Navy in October 1943, and he served on the USS Difta, a 459-foot-long Andromeda-class attack cargo ship, one of hundreds of such ships that blasted the shores of Okinawa and spilled its men into crossing gusts of gunfire and streams of shrapnel. When he came home after that, he shortened his name to make it sound American. According to the Hartford Current on August 1, 1954, reporting from East Hampton, Connecticut, fire of unknown origin swept through a Spellman's Point cottage at Lake Pocotopog at 5 a.m. Saturday, gutting the dwelling and badly burning the owner, Albert Kays of West Hartford. Mrs. Hilda Kays and their two sons, Clement III and Christopher V, escaped from the blazing structure in their nightclothes without injury. Mrs. Kays was awakened at a few minutes before 5 a.m. by a crackling sound. She saw the fire, apparently on the front porch. She woke her husband, led the two children to safety, and called the East Hampton Fire Department. Mr. Kays rushed to the rear of the two-story cottage in an effort to connect and use a small hose to fight the blaze. He couldn't get the pump operating and then tried to leave the house through the back door. By that time, the fire had swept through the ground floor and he was badly burned before he was forced to return to the small utility room in which the pump was kept. Trapped in the room, which had only one small rectangular window, Kays, a large man, fought his way through it with the aid of a next-door neighbor, Charles W. Kent Jr. of Brooklyn, New York. He cut his hands on the way. The barking of dogs and the roar of the rapidly spreading flames awoke other neighbors who took charge of the Kays' youngsters. Thur Bankston of New Britain, who has a cottage across the street from the Kays' cottage, took Kays to the office of Dr. Louis Soroff, where he was given emergency treatment for bad burns of the chest, face, and both arms, and severe cuts on both hands. He was then taken to the Veterans Hospital in Rocky Hill in the East Hampton Ambulance. At the hospital, he was given several transfusions of blood and was placed on the critical list. His condition was unchanged Saturday night, hospital authorities said. My further research shows that Albert recovered enough to enjoy a long career inspecting weapons and ammunition for the Army Ordnance Corps and, in 1961, he became the president of the Hartford Local of the National Association of Government Employees, proudly representing World War II veterans who worked in the defense industry. He died in 1981 in Flushing, Queens. By that time, the community of Hartford Avenue had long ago been displaced. Their houses and shops had all been torn down, and the street itself had been dug up. The city put in a new wide thoroughfare that no one would want to walk along. They called it Martin Luther King Drive, and that's where they put several new, tall public housing buildings. They set those buildings well back from the street, each an island in its own parking lot. all of this because it took me 10 full years after I found the 124 stories in the envelope of suicides. 10 years before I had the strength or the will or whatever to even put them in order. That's how I saw it then. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't put them in order until I was ready and I wasn't yet ready. I didn't know what that meant. Maybe it meant that I wasn't yet ready to really look at death. Or maybe it was all just too much, but it took me 10 years. It took me until 2007 before I could put them in order, and it's been almost another 10 years since that, and now I think that for those first 10 years, I didn't have it in me yet to commit to see them as clearly as I could see them. I was afraid to do the work I had to do, to see how different people see what it means for them to live what it means for them to choose to die, and what it means to me that I want to live. So every now and then in those first 10 years, often when I was alone and I'd had some wine, I'd take the loose mass of clippings from the archival folder that I'd put them in. 
The folder was made of clear plastic, so I could read the story that was on the top of the clippings before I even opened the folder. I'd unwind the white string that kept the flap of the folder closed, and I'd slide the mass out from the folder onto my desk so I could spread the stories out. And almost every time I did that, I reread that suicide story that first caught my eye the first time I'd spread those clippings out. The story of the time when Anna Wasik, in her small apartment above a tavern on Hartford Avenue, smashed a milk bottle and dug the shards of glass into her arms. She must have watched the blood well up and spill on the linoleum or into the basin of the sink. I couldn't understand it. She stood in her kitchen and dug the shards into her arms. Someone could do that? Well, she did it. If she could do that, then I could do that, right? Why don't I do that? What stops me? I think I know, but why don't I do that? read that story again and again. I read it every time I took the clippings out, I bet. I'd shuffle through the other stories and see what would strike me this time and what I could find in them. But I kept that story of Anna Wasik on top, and I must have read it every time I took the clippings out. Ten years after I found those stories, I finally Xeroxed each of them front and back. I finally put the copies in order. I finally put them in a binder and I finally cataloged and cross-indexed them according to key terms and motifs. And then I read through them in order again and again with fresh shock. I wrote about them individually, and I wrote about them in various combinations to find what I could find within them. I filled shelves of notebooks with my reactions to them, and... Well, so, it took another five years of doing that... It took until 2012 for me to realize that each time I read the end of Anna Wasik's third reported attempt since the envelope began on April 7, 1941, her third reported attempt, that is, in 19 months, and her second in just five months, this, her most willful or her most desperate or both her most willful and most desperate attempt, each time I read the end of that story of hers from November 18, 1943, Acting Sergeant McCarthy reported Mrs. Wasik attempted suicide with the broken bottle by digging the pieces of glass into her arm following an argument at her home with her husband. George Mitchell, 62, of 53 Church Street, was given a continuance until tomorrow when arraigned in police court on a non-support charge on which he was arrested at 5.45 p.m. yesterday by policeman Fred Jones. Each time I read that, I saw that she smashed a milk bottle and dug the shards into her arm, and her husband, George Mitchell, was arrested for non-support. For some reason, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but for some reason it took me about 15 years in all, 15 years of reading that story to notice that George Mitchell wasn't Anna Wasik's husband. Joe Wasik was her husband. George Mitchell was a different husband and a different story altogether, and he'd only been rolled up into Anna's story by the sheer force of her self-desecration, which was so powerful that it seemed to have a gravitational pull. It was a pull on the fingers of the layout man at the New Britain Herald, I imagine, laying out the stories late at night, who should have cordoned George off in his own sordid drama with his own headline or a section header or at least a dash or a dingbat, but Anna's despair was too powerful for that. That's how George became part of the story of Anna's self-destruction, which was a force that was so strong that it only took three and a half months after she dug the shards into her arms for George to be found in a cheap rooming house on Hartford Avenue, just two blocks up from where Joe still lived with his wife Anna, 
and where Anna had done that. The New Britain Herald reported on March 28, 1944, Police smashed door to save man's life. Hartford Avenue resident tired of living, overcome by gas. Found overcome by gas on the kitchen floor of his home at 181 Hartford Avenue this morning, George Mitchell, or Serge Michel, 64, told policeman Semplicio Marinelli he was tired of living. He was taken to New Britain General Hospital, where it was said his condition was good. Receiving a report that gas was permeating the building, policemen Marinelli and Arthur Hemingway battered down the door to enter the kitchen and find Mitchell on the floor with two stove gas jets open. Report was made to Desk Sergeant John C. Stadler at 7.17 a.m. and policemen Joseph Moore, Joseph Kutowski, Cyrus Schoonmaker, and Henry Zouchke responded with the ambulance and inhalator. Mitchell, according to police, was formerly employed as janitor of the International Workers' Order Club at 53 Church Street. Of late, he has been working for the Angstrom Company, Incorporated. As he was taken to the hospital, police took a gold watch and two boxes containing valuables and the house key to headquarters. Although Mitchell did not want to tell any relatives' names, authorities said he is separated from his wife. He has children by a former marriage. My grandfather clipped that story out on March 28, 1944. He used a series of even scissor strokes to cut a six-inch long column-wide strip up from the deckled bottom edge of the front page. This was just two days before he'd see the salacious front page story of how Mrs. Rosetta Vaughn Roselle Poole, 22 years old, and a war worker and a negress from out of state, as the New Britain Herald made a point of calling her, set fire to her home early Monday, intending to commit suicide because her husband kept running around with another black man on Hartford Avenue. But my grandfather didn't know that yet. George Mitchell had had his own room in the back of the hall of the International Workers' Order, which was situated among the working people, and was within a one-block radius of a seedy bar and grill called the Hollywood Restaurant, a filthy tap room, and the well-documented tawdriness of the Regal Grill. In some time in the immediate aftermath, after Anna sank the shards of glass in her arm, George left his lodging at the Union Hall to take a shoddy room and try to end it all in the kitchen he shared two blocks further up Hartford Avenue. I read the end of George Mitchell's story again, and I see that the reporter made special mention of the gold watch and the two boxes containing valuables that police seized from him. Property taken, presumably as evidence, from this old man who'd had some hard years and was recently arrested for non-support of his wife. I don't know about the two boxes of valuables. I don't know what they are. I do know, though, that a gold watch is an emblem of long and faithful service and I have no idea how it fell into George's hands. I don't know what he'd served faithfully. I don't know what he ever served, but something in just the past few months caught him up and moved him to leave the Universal Brotherhood of the International Workers' Order, which sought to build the collective power of the working class around the world, all the men and women just like him, even as the capitalists worked to separate us and pit us against each other to keep us weak. Something moved him to leave the International Workers' Order to work for Engstrom Incorporated, a non-union shop that fought every attempt of its workers to organize, a corporation that was conceived in an act of fraud and quickly grew fat, profiting off the world war that pitted workers against workers in a mutual slaughter. Engstrom was in the former New England Tool and Dye factory at the corner of Meadow and Pine, three blocks south of Church Street. It had an initial capitalization of just $15,500, and that money had been extracted under false pretenses from two local doctors who testified in court that they had been wined and dined and then almost immediately cut out of any share in the earnings from the corporation's exponential growth. Angstrom yielded over $600,000 in gross sales in its first three years, an incredible return of 4,000%. A contemporaneous headline from the Herald says, War boom speeds Angstrom growth. Angstrom, 
where George Mitchell left the IWO to go work, made industrial tools for several industrial firms in New Britain, like Fafner Baring, Landers Frary and Clark, and Stanley Works, who all made parts for the mutual slaughter of the working class that we call war. How did he get to this point? I've researched his life as best I could to see the forces that shaped him and the decisions he made that led him to this stage. The records are often sketchy, but I can trace him back to Lithuania in 1909, when something caught up the 28-year-old Serge Michel, carried him over the ocean and brought him to New Britain. He was a French-Lithuanian born to two French-Lithuanians the sort that were left behind when Napoleon's grand army spilled over the border, swept through, crashed onto Russia, and drew back broken like the tide's edge through frosty snow, leaving in its wake and its wash the deserters and the wounded to dissipate under Russian rule for four generations, before something caught Serge Michel up and brought him here, to New Britain, and he renamed himself George Mitchell. I haven't been able to find what he did for the first 20 years he was here, but in 1929, I know, he caught on at Landers, Frary, and Clark, where his job was to stand all day at the mouth of a great furnace burning orange and burning white, and hot fumes blasted his arms as he tipped the great bowl that hung from chains, and he poured orange-white steel in a pool that spread and cooled to make a sheet of steel that would be rolled out and cut up to make kitchen knives. Standing in the surging blast, he poured out the living scourge of fire again and again, many times an hour, and a shift was ten hours long. He did that for less than a year, and then he drifted east about 25 miles away, past Middletown and across the Connecticut River, to the town of East Hampton, about 20 miles southeast of Hartford. He married a woman named Agatha, and they had children. In the November 1930 archive of the Hartford Current, I found this story that was datelined East Hampton, Connecticut. Charged with arson in connection with a fire that threatened to destroy the North Store block of which he is part owner here, George Mitchell, 49, formerly of New Britain, was arrested here this afternoon as the climax of an all-day fire marshal's hearing before State Police Commissioner Robert T. Hurley. He was placed under $10,000 bond for trial November 20. Evidence, found by state policeman Roy B. Pettengill, that Mitchell, who had worked as a chef in the modern lunch where the fire started, possessed the only key to the vacant restaurant, led to his arrest. The fire was on the morning of October 29. It was extinguished by the East Hampton Volunteer Fire Department, summoned by the night telephone operator, Mrs. Harry Benton. Finding cans of gasoline, candles, and newspapers in the rear of the vacant restaurant led to the theory that the blaze was incendiary. Witnesses also said they had seen men run from the building before the start of the fire. State policeman Pettengill, assigned to investigate, has questioned dozens of persons in his efforts to solve the mystery of the fire. Many of these testified today before Commissioner Hurley. The hearing opened at 10 this morning, the state police commissioner acting in his capacity as state fire marshal. David Lightsey's, a former owner of the property, Mrs. Raymond Worthington and Mrs. Fred Gates, who claimed to have seen three men leave the building and drive away before the fire, Robert Brainerd, insurance man of Middletown, Frederick Fitch of the East Hampton Fire Department, Deputy Fire Marshal Merton Weir, and Gus James, former manager of the Modern Lunch, were examined with Mitchell. State Policeman Ray Pettengill testified Mitchell had denied having a key to the place when it was demanded following the fire, but had turned it over after further questioning the following day. The testimony further brought out that a month before the fire, insurance on the building, assessed at $12,000, had been increased from $17,000 to $19,000. In the block, besides the vacant restaurant, are a drugstore, a market, and several apartments. George Mitchell took the fifth and said nothing in his own defense. The other owner of the property is in Greece. The fire George made was too weak to destroy the evidence, so he was caught. I don't know if George did any time, 
But in 1933, I know he and Agatha went back to New Britain, where he didn't last long, pouring burning steel again into iron molds. And he had no official employment I can find after that until 1938, five years later, when he opened a candy store on the east side of downtown, right in the heart of the action, on the same block of Church Street as the Hotel Stanley, a fish market, the offices of the New Britain Herald, and the field office of the Hartford Current. His block ended at the edge of the train station, he was just two blocks from the factories of Union Manufacturing, and he was spitting distance from several taverns. Even with all that foot traffic, however, even with all those crowds going by all day, his candy shop went bust in months. His shop was in a storefront of Calumet Hall, in front of the ballroom where dances were held, as well as meetings of fraternal organizations, ethnic social clubs, and the local chapter of the International Workers' Order. In 1941, it seems, when he was 60, Agatha Mitchell kicked George Mitchell out, and George moved into a back room at Calumet Hall, where the International Workers' Order let him, their brother worker, sleep, and they gave him an honest wage for keeping the place clean. The International Workers' Order was formed in 1930 by communists who split off from a Jewish socialist mutual benefit and fraternal organization called the Workmen's Circle. The bitter schism began at the Workmen's Circle's annual conference in 1922 in Toronto. The executive committee of the Circle introduced a resolution that condemned the Soviets for their excesses against Russian socialists, an obvious provocation to the communists among them, who were Trotskyites after all, and could see the difference between protest and real revolution. After eight years of recriminations, vicious volleys, counterattacks, attempted coups and purges, the communists finally left the workman's circle, turning briefly back to roar into history's fiery depths a manifesto that said, the counter-revolutionary physiognomy of the workman's circle is most clearly expressed in its attitude toward the Soviet Union, the only proletarian state in the world, the pride and crown of achievement of all class-conscious workers throughout the entire world. They left the 1930 convention and immediately founded the International Workers' Order, which was formed as an affiliate of the Communist Party USA. On the walls of Calumet Hall on Church Street, the posters said, The IWO offers protections to miners, steel, auto, all workers, both Negro and white. Life insurance of $100 to $2,000. Sick benefits of $4, $6, $8, and $10 a week at a cost to fit the worker's pocketbook. Tell your fellow worker about the IWO at the bench, at the machine, at dinner hour. On one of the posters, a strong, lean, shirtless white man strides towards us, carrying an enormous flag for the order. The flag wraps in the wind behind him and behind the head of a white woman in a heavy skirt whose two strides behind him and to his right. The woman strides forth with her eyes fixed on the babe she carries in her arms, while a boy in short pants with a sober, almost frightened cherub's face and swept back flaxen curls hides from the future behind one of the woman's legs. And the girl on the other side of the woman, the girl whose skirt whips like a flag, she raises her hands above her head, and with eyes closed, she howls or sings. And on the other side of the white man carrying the enormous flag, on the other side of the white man from the white man's family, strides forth a giant black man with his sleeves rolled up, a figure of deliverance, Promethean. Together, brothers and sisters, can't we build the world we want? That's the brotherhood that George Mitchell left. It took just three months after that for him to be found passed out on a kitchen floor in a rooming house on Hartford Avenue. He told the cops he was tired of living. The hospital said he was in good condition. I can find no trace of him after that.
is From the Envelope of Suicides by Ben Morad. Sound and music by Wilson Vidiner and Courtney Sheedy. Guest voices by Faith Helma and Eric Geyer. This has been made possible by a grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. If you are considering suicide, please stop for a moment and look at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Think about it. At that site, you can find resources and how to contact someone who can help you talk things out. That's suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Or you can call them at 1-800-273-TALK. For more about this project, including notes on this episode, please visit envelopeofsuicides.com and follow at Ben Morad. I'm Stephanie Barr. Thank you.